Hey everyone, it is Thursday, November 9th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. She's back, everybody, in the place where we read the news <laughs> and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, welcome back. Yes, she's back. Back again. Uh, thank you, Moshe. I had a, a lot of fun covering politics here on Long Island. Good time was had. As we talked about, I love a good election night. Mm-hmm. Any surprises? For the most part, Republicans had a pretty good night on Long Island. There were none of the national issues like abortion and marijuana. I know you talked about it yesterday. We're going to talk about it a little bit later. So it was very much a local race. Um, and and for the most part, Republicans did pretty well. Uh, Democrats held on to some seats, too. So no huge surprises. As you know, it's a lot of hurry up and wait. You get there, you prep. You're kind of like you do a run through and then you just wait for the results to come in. And then they come in. There's like 30 minutes of just nonstop action and speeches. And then the room clears. It's it's a very strange flow of events. Well, it's good to have you back. It's never the same doing the show solo. Thank you, Mosh. And I totally agree. It's a lot more fun when it's the two of us. <laughs> You're like, Mosh, that was a boring podcast on Wednesday. <laughs> I no, it was very good. It was very informative. It's not the same, though, without two people. Even when, when you were on paternity leave and it was just me, I was like, oh, my God, is anyone out there? Is anyone still listening to this thing? <laughs> OK, let's get to some headlines. Another GOP debate. And once again, without Donald Trump, he held a rally nearby in Miami. We'll have the big takeaways Plus the latest from the Middle East, more Gazans flee south. As Hamas tells the New York Times, its goal is never-ending war. And a former Israeli prime minister says it's time for Benjamin Netanyahu to step down. Some medical news, the FDA approves a new obesity drug from Eli Lilly. And remember that first approved postpartum depression drug? Uh, Well, it's going to cost about (laughs) $16,000. We'll get into it. Swipe left. Bumble CEO Whitney Wolf Heard is stepping down as some new numbers show young people not so into dating apps. Mosh pandas appear to be the latest victims of tensions between the United States and China. 2023, the hottest year on record. And Bravo's Andy Cohen says CNN needs to reverse course and let him and Anderson Cooper drink alcohol during their New Year's Eve broadcast. The same way we tape this podcast every day, Jill. (laughs) I was actually thinking that maybe we should do a drunk New Year's (laughs) Eve show. Oh, boy. (laughs) And and Moshe, of course, is on this day in history. It's a big anniversary for uh, a big 90s rap group, Jill. We'll test your knowledge. Don't dare me, Moshe. (laughs) 90s were my time to shine. All right. And then there were five, five Republican presidential candidates not named Donald Trump faced off in Miami last night. This debate moderated by NBC News anchors Lester Holt and Kristen Welker and also joined by conservative talk show host Hugh Hewitt on stage. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, businessman Vivek Ramaswamy and Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, and once again, Republican frontrunner, former President Donald Trump not participating, instead holding a rally in a nearby suburb as he looks to court Hispanic voters. Most you have affectionately been calling these the JV debates or the race for second place, given Trump's huge lead. 
Last night was the first debate since Hamas attacked Israel last month and in the ensuing war. So certainly an opportunity for candidates with foreign policy experience like Nikki Haley. Jill, I stand by the fact that this is one of those JV debates. The candidates here all polling in the teens or single digits while Trump continues to dominate with 50 to 60 percent in the polls. Doesn't even need to show up. He was 10 miles away in Hialeah, the mayor there saying they're naming a street after him. He called his Republican competitors unwatchable. And him not showing up for these debates is making it really challenging for them to break out, for them to contrast themselves against him. As far as the debate that took place with the uh, 500 pound gorilla, not there. Well, it really appears like DeSantis and Nikki Haley right now are emerging as the people who will compete with Trump, if that is possible. The two of them continue to dominate on Wednesday night, kind of he continues to represent sort of MAGA light, uh, that wing of the party. Uh, She represents sort of the more traditional Republican Party. Given the state of the world, foreign policy dominated uh, the top of the debate All five of them on stage were asked about the Hamas-Israel war. All of them said they would support Israel even more than Biden, asked what they would tell the Israeli prime minister right now. Here's the rundown. DeSantis said, I would tell them to finish the job. Haley, finish them. Scott, wipe Hamas off the map. Christie, go in and make sure Hamas can't do this again. Ramaswamy, smoke out those terrorists. You get the feeling. So you get the sense there of where they would stand on foreign policy in the Middle East. No talk of humanitarian pause or even civilian casualties. Staying with the war, there was also talk about anti-Semitism here at home and around the world. Nikki Haley comparing pro-Hamas protests on campus to the KKK, saying that uh, anti-Semitism is a form of racism and should be taken as seriously. DeSantis saying funding should be withheld from campuses where jihad is happening. Tim Scott also saying he would consider withholding federal funding from public universities where this sort of thing is happening. So while they were all united on that stuff, there was a division on Ukraine. Nikki Haley, Chris Christie calling for continued aid to Ukraine. The others hedging a bit, uh, realizing that half of Republicans, almost the majority of Republicans now who vote, aren't into funding Ukraine anymore. Beyond foreign policy, there was also talk of abortion, given the result in Ohio, where yet another state here has put abortion rights into the uh, Constitution. And so they were asked about federal abortion ban. That's something that Tim Scott supports at 15 weeks. Something, though, Nikki Haley says is completely unrealistic and that they need to be honest with Republican voters that it ain't happening. It's happening at the state level. And uh, Christie chiming in that there's no federal role for abortion, uh, that ultimately it's a state thing. Ron DeSantis, by the way, supports a 15-week federal ban as well, though given the Senate, the House, that ain't happening. They discussed a whole bunch of other topics. No major breakthrough moments. Honestly, the most memorable thing, Jill, last night is that Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy freaking hate each other. We put a mashup together on Instagram. They cannot stand one another. They're having a fight in the debate within every 10 minutes or so. Now, we should say that none of the other candidates appear to like Vivek Ramaswamy, but she hates him the most. No handshake. At one point, he referenced her daughter being on TikTok. She said, keep my daughter out of your mouth, you scum. Uh, So it just it's remarkable, just the level of hatred these two have for one another. Bottom line, verdict, nothing changes the dynamic after last night. Trump continues to dominate the Republican field. The fact that he won't give them the time of day, it makes it challenging for them, but though they also really seem reluctant to attack them. They they had two hours in primetime last night on a number of networks, all the NBC networks, to do so, and none of them really laid a hand on him. No, None of them are really contrasting with him. And so the question is, is that a mistake? 
And so we will see what happens. In the meantime, that's about it from the 2024 field with about eight to 10 weeks to go before voting begins. And it follows Tuesday's election, an off year. But as you mentioned yesterday, it did give some big wins to Democrats and perhaps helped ease some of their concerns after polls showed Donald Trump beating Joe Biden in some key swing states. Biden himself tweeting, quote, across the country tonight, democracy won and MAGA lost. Voters vote. Polls don't. Now let's go win next year. Quickly, some takeaways from Tuesday after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the abortion issue, getting Democrats out to vote in Ohio. Voters passed a ballot initiative that enshrined abortion rights in the state constitution. Yeah, we've mentioned this is the seventh state to do it. All ballot initiatives since the Roe v. Wade was overturned last year have all gone pro-choice, Jill, even in red states, multiple red states now. Um, And a whole nother group of states are set to vote on this next year, including Arizona, Florida, Iowa, Missouri. And so Democrats are hopeful that, you know, if they've seen this in Kansas, seen this in Ohio, that they'll continue to see this uh, move across the country given where polls are, uh, despite what the Supreme Court may have said. But keep keep in mind, by the way, one of the reasons the Supreme Court ruled the way it did was to hand it back to the states. So it has been handed back to the states, and each state is determining where it stands. In Virginia, Democrats won back control of the House and kept control of their state Senate after the Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, campaigned on enacting new abortion restrictions. In Pennsylvania, a Democratic state Supreme Court candidate was actually able to expand Biden's margin of victory in 2020, also winning a race where abortion rights were a big issue. Yeah, expect to hear a lot more uh, from Biden on that front. Uh, Democrats, if they try to nationalize that issue next year, staying with politics here, uh, keeping tabs on what's happening in Congress. The House voted late Tuesday to censure Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan. Quite a rebuke. There's been just over two dozen of these in the history of Congress. This is the second this year, though. Tlaib is the only Palestinian American in Congress. The vote was 234 to 188 nearly two dozen Democrats joining Republicans in censuring Tlaib. Congress censuring her for her outspoken criticism of Israel, uh, lending support to Hamas, and using the expression from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. One congressman saying that she has levied unbelievable falsehoods about our greatest ally. Now, keep in mind that censure is one step below expulsion, but doesn't actually do anything. It's basically just a verbal rebuke. And it was notable here that you had 22 Democrats vote with Republicans on this measure, even the Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, saying, you know, Tlaib probably shouldn't be using that language because it is seen as anti-Semitic. An important history here, when it comes to the expression we did a little bit on the Instagram account yesterday, from the river to the sea, the history of that expression goes back to the 1960s, really, when the Palestine Liberation Organization, the uh, group headed by Arafat that was uh, conducting terrorist attacks around the world, basically said, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, saying that Israel will no longer exist, that there will be a Palestine that replaces Israel, the Jewish state, a call to arms, the river to the sea being from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. Many Jews, uh, and in this case, uh, majority members of Congress, see it as an anti-Semitic slogan here, given its origins. Uh, Keep in mind, the Hamas terrorist group is also adopted from the river to the sea. Their intention being that 
a river to the sea will be a Palestine free of a Jewish state. Now, there are some protesters, including Rashida Tlaib, who say, I mean it differently. I did not mean the elimination of Israel. I mean, Palestine will be free alongside Israel. But given, again, the origins and the history of the phrase, Congress decided to rebuke her on Tuesday night. And one comparison that I heard here, Jill, it's sort of like the Confederate flag, which means something and was later defended as a a symbol of Southern pride. But many people point to its origins, right, uh, in the Confederacy and say, well, it's hate speech because of that. And so in a time where we are trying to be sensitive to the concerns of various minority groups and how they feel, uh, the feeling was there's lots of ways to talk about the cause without using an expression that makes Jews feel like they have no right to uh, homeland. She had also posted a video accusing President Biden of supporting genocide in Gaza. Uh, so that was also a part of this as well. OK, now to what's actually happening on the ground in the Middle East. 50,000 more Gazans made use of a humanitarian corridor that was opened by the Israeli military to leave the northern Gaza Strip and head south as Israel ramps up fighting against Hamas in Gaza City, which is in the northern part of the Strip. And we also wanted to mention a couple of interviews that are getting some attention. First, from The New York Times, Hamas leaders talk about creating a permanent state of war. They tell The New York Times that the October 7th attack, the war and all of the Palestinian casualties are what they describe as a necessary cost of what they call a great accomplishment, the shattering of the status quo and opening up what they hope will be a permanent war with Israel. They say they see no peace with Israel, only complete destruction. One Hamas member saying Hamas's goal is not to run Gaza and to bring it water and electricity and such. This battle was not because we wanted fuel or laborers. It did not seek to improve the situation in Gaza, that this battle is to completely overthrow the situation. Yeah, it comes as there's been a debate within the group because they've been running Gaza for 16 years as to whether they were going to become a government and then learn to deal with, you know, the Israeli government and go through the same evolution that the PLO went through when they became the Palestinian Authority to go from terrorist group to governing entity. It's clear here that there's been a debate internally within Hamas for years and a decision was made in the lead up to October 7th that, nope, we're going to stay with our original intent here and go for the destruction of Israel, that there is no living alongside this country. So it was interesting to hear the reaction to this, Jill, because it struck some people as surprising, like, oh my God, I can't believe what they're saying. And then some people who've been watching Hamas for a very long time being like, well, welcome to the party. This is what they've been saying for a while. At least they're being honest about it. And some Israeli government leaders embarrassed that they didn't see this coming, um, given that this has been the debate internally and basically took their eye off the ball ahead of October 7th. And to that end, an interview in Politico uh, that is making some waves as well. Former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert telling Politico that current Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has, quote, been destroyed emotionally by his massive failure on national security. He said Netanyahu is in a state of, quote, nervous breakdown as he sought to avoid being thrown out of office for failing to safeguard national security in the murderous Hamas attacks of October 7th. He says this means Israel is now steering off course strategically, insisting that the priority should be to negotiate an end game with the international community involving a return to talks on the formation of a Palestinian state instead of turning back the clock to full military oversight over Gaza. 
We told you Netanyahu had said in an interview with ABC News that Israel is preparing to take control of Gaza's security for, quote, an indefinite period after Hamas has been crushed. And with that, Olmert says, quote, every minute he, Benjamin Netanyahu, is prime minister, he is a danger to Israel. I seriously mean it. I am certain that the Americans understand he is in bad shape. So something to know about Olmert and Netanyahu is they hate each other's guts. Uh, they've <laughs> been rivals context. for a very long time. Like, and so these are two former prime ministers. I mean, it's like it's like sort of saying that like Donald Trump had bad things to say about Barack Obama or Joe Biden. Like, not a surprise here that Olmert is saying this. In fact, there was a defamation lawsuit uh, a couple of years ago that Netanyahu won because Olmert was saying that Netanyahu was out of his mind uh, and needed a psychiatrist. And actually, Netanyahu won that lawsuit <laughs> for defamation. So these two go way back. And one thing to keep in mind is they were in the same government of Ariel Sharon 15 years ago when the decision was made to uh, move out of Gaza. That Israel was like, we're going to end our occupation of Gaza. We're going to move 10,000 settlers. Who was for it? Ehud Olmert, it was his brainchild. Who was against it? Netanyahu. So these two have been going at it for a very long time. Important context here. Olmert, by the way, served prison time for corruption. Netanyahu himself is facing corruption charges, which could send it to prison at some point. Israeli politics is sort of like Illinois politics, where most leaders at some point go to prison. Anyway, keep that all in <laughs> mind. It, Rob, what's his name? Rob Goblovich. I yes, I could. Ne- yeah. I would never be able to pronounce that name. Blago just goes by Blago. We had George Ryan. Anyway, having been to both places, there's a resemblance of Illinois politics and Israeli politics. That said, still notable at a time of unity in Israel that you do have a former prime minister saying. You know, listen, Netanyahu has got a major problem. He's got to get out and he's causing us trouble. Now, Olmert believes that it was still the right move uh, for Israel to get out of Gaza nearly 20 years ago. And he says that Netanyahu screwed it all up with his bad policies towards the Palestinians. So that's important context here, but still an interesting interview nonetheless, uh, because, you know, you have uh, someone shooting inside the tent, so to speak. And it is notable as well, because he's not the only person saying that there have been rallies as well for people calling on Netanyahu to resign. Oh, yeah. I mean, Netanyahu is not popular right now. Yes. Yeah. So it's not as if Olmert is just this rogue person who's like, no, he's got to go. And it's this personal vendetta. No, he represents about three quarters of Israelis uh, right now who are like, he's either got to go now or got to go right after the war. Now, as far as the post-war Gaza is concerned, the White House, interestingly, on Wednesday moved closer to the Israeli position saying, listen, there will be a time period where Israeli forces will have to have security responsibility over Gaza. That was controversial about 48 hours ago. Less controversial now acknowledge that, well, they got to do something because they got to prevent the next terrorist attack, but they need to find a plan as quickly as possible to remove themselves, to extract themselves from the situation. So that's something that we continue to talk about. But when we get there is still a question mark. How long this war lasts, whether it's several more weeks or months, Jill, we're going to get a sense of that in the coming days as the Israelis continue to kind of close the gap in Gaza City. All right. We have plenty of news coming up. But first, a word from a couple of our sponsors. We'll start with Bowl and Branch Sheets. The holidays are almost here and everyone's in a gifting mode. But most people are forgetting one very special thing, treating themselves this season. So this year... Treat yourself. (laughs) You deserve it. (laughs) This year, give yourself a better night's sleep in the softest, most luxurious sheets from Bowl & Branch. We first got Bowl & Branch sheets in my house a few months ago. They are so soft and breathable. 
And this isn't just a line in an ad. They genuinely get softer with every wash. So we went with the color white. So did we. <laughs> Same Z. They look fresh and bright. They definitely brighten up our bedroom. So this holiday season, again, give yourself or a loved one the gift of a better night's sleep. Remember, Bowl & Branch products are made differently from the rarest 100% organic cotton on earth. And they do not have toxins and synthetic pesticides and harsh chemicals um, at any step of their making. So they are good for everyone, especially people with sensitive skin. Best of all, Bowl & Branch gives you a 30-night worry-free guarantee. You get free shipping as well and returns on all orders. And they have a signature gift box. So their sheets, their signature sheets will come wrapped and ready in a beautiful holiday box, which will make the holiday season even more special. So upgrade your sleep with 25% off your first order at Bowl & Branch. It is their best offer of the entire year. Just head to bowlandbranch.com. Use the promo code MONEWS. That is bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. The promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S. This is a limited time offer and some exclusions apply. So see their site for details. Before we get back to the news, we have one more partner to talk about today. If you're a longtime listener, you know that uh, I've been drinking AG1 for about a year now. When I started drinking AG1 daily, I could feel a real difference in my energy level. And especially now that I'm a new dad, I can use all that I can get. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement that supports your body's universal needs, gut health, stress management, immune support. Um, AG1 is a simple scoop of powder in the morning with a glass of water. It's simple, it's easy, and it helps you get all your nutrients. I've been hearing from some of you who are like, you got me, finally, I'm gonna try AG1. I got a couple messages recently about that. And that applies to some friends and family as well who are trying it. So once you take AG1 in the morning, you feel like you're covered for the day. And so if you really wanna take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. You can try AG1 right now with a special Mo News discount and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Go over to drinkag1.com slash Mo News. That is drinkag1.com slash Mo News right now for the special deal and to take ownership of your health. Time now for the speed read from the Washington Post. The FDA approved Eli Lilly's diabetes drug for treating obesity, opening the door for widespread insurance coverage that could make the sought-after medication affordable for millions of patients. The approval, although widely expected, is a watershed moment for Lilly and a society grappling with the high costs of caring for patients with obesity. The drug is called ZepBound, and it will give patients another potent tool to lose weight. It also forces employers and insurers to reckon with covering the costs of an expensive drug that patients may have to take long-term to keep the weight off. The active ingredient is called tierzepatide. It's part of this new generation of appetite-suppressing drugs that, despite sometimes unpleasant side effects, have become sensations among Hollywood celebrities and people who have long struggled to lose weight and keep it off. The revolution in weight loss treatment comes at a pivotal time for public health in the U.S. when more than 14% of adults suffer from diabetes and almost 42% have obesity, according to the CDC. Yeah, so this joins the party with uh, Ozempic and Wega V. This is just the latest option, uh, the active ingredient again, tirzepatide is the second of a new generation of these drugs that treat type 2 diabetes, but also treat uh, obesity. So the FDA already approved Ozempic and Wega V in the last five years or so. Uh, both drugs have the active ingredient semaglutide, 
like semi-glutide, tirzepatide slows down the emptying of the stomach. People feel fuller, quicker, and for longer. All three drugs also target the area of the brain that regulates appetite, blunting cravings for many people. But as with Ozempic, and V, the approval for Zepbao now uh, is likely to increase demand that the manufacturers have struggled to meet. You know, we've heard from people in the Monus community who struggle with uh, diabetes who are like, I can't get my drug because everyone's using it for weight loss now. As far as how this new drug works, terzepatide is injected once a week and communicates with receptors in areas of the brain that help regulate appetite, dialing up two naturally produced hormones in the gut that trigger that sensation of fullness. So we're going to continue to track this. I guess the more options, the merrier, Jill. But, you know, it's exploded in interest and popularity. So we'll see if these manufacturers can keep up. And staying with the medical beat from Axios, the first pill approved to treat postpartum depression will be priced at $15,900 for a two-week treatment course, according to its manufacturer. That drug is called... Zerzuve, the pricing decision had been a big question mark since the FDA in August approved the drug for postpartum depression, but not to treat overall depression. The company that makes it, it's called Sage, had previously said that the pill's price would be under $10,000 if it was also approved for major depressive disorder, which has a much larger patient population. An estimated 500,000 people are affected by postpartum depression each year. Yeah, about one in eight American postpartum women uh, impacted by it. This newly approved medication at 15900 Jill, for 14 days is just over $1,000 a pill over that two-week regimen. Uh, before insurance, it's TBD right now. If insurance will cover it, who will cover it, how much of it, uh, they will cover it. But you can imagine a lot of patients will have trouble paying for this drug. And we should note, they tested it on people with severe depression sort of the next level of drugs. The current options to treat postpartum depression are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. These are antidepressants that take weeks to kick in and must continue to be taken on a daily basis for at least 6 to 12 months. You might be familiar with some generic SSRIs like Prozac and Zoloft. By the way, they typically cost about 20 bucks a month, um, so nowhere near the cost of Zerzuve. And, you know, a lot of experts watching this are concerned that because this has gotten so much attention, people will be jumping to Zerzuve, minus the cost, of course, uh, without taking initial approaches, seeing a therapist trying these SSRIs before jumping to this new drug. So we'll see what happens. But it is a very serious issue. And um, nevertheless, it's good to see the uh, manufacturers and drug companies taking postpartum depression seriously and creating multiple options. From the Wall Street Journal, Bumble's Whitney Wolfherd is stepping down as chief executive of the company. She founded the female-focused dating app nearly a decade ago. In 2014, when she was just 24, Wolfherd launched the dating app Bumble on the idea that having women initiate conversations with dating prospects would help weed out unwanted messages and put them in control of their romantic lives. She will be succeeded by Lydian Jones, who became the chief executive of Slack back in January. Jones will start as CEO of Bumble on January 2nd. Bumble, by the way, comprises of a handful of dating and relationship apps. So that includes Bumble, Bumble for Friends, Bedu, Fruits, that's with a Z, and it's for Gen Z, and Official, which is a newly acquired app that aims to help couples strengthen their relationships. I remember Bumble. I think, Jill, you were out of the dating game by the time Bumble came around. 
No, no, I was oh. still in the dating game. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? You you have the two kids. So I'm like, oh, she's been married a long, long time. I'm just more thinking about this app official. It's an app to help couples strengthen their relationships. Isn't the point of being in a relationship that you don't need to use a dating app? <laughs> right. You're finally done with apps. Um, it is interesting. Wolf Herd's journey is remarkable. Jill, she, if some people might be familiar with this, she started over at Tinder, uh, had huge issues there, actually a lawsuit there for the way she was treated and said, I'm going to do my own thing. And there were certain points where Match Group, which owns Tinder and basically every other dating app, tried to buy her. And she's like, absolutely not. There's a fascinating podcast I suggest to anyone interested in kind of business history called Business Wars. And they go into uh, the Bumble, Tinder, Match.com history. It's worth a few episodes. By the way, when she took her own company, Bumble Public, she became the youngest ever self-made female billionaire. Um, that's when the stock was at its high. Right now, she's worth a cool $500 million plus, according to Forbes, so still not doing too shabby. Yeah, back in 2021, when she took that company public, she actually had her young son on her hip as she rang the opening bell at the NASDAQ, so which was pretty cool. And this all comes at an interesting time for dating apps. Uh, there's a new Axios report uh, on a new survey that shows that young people, the youngins these days, Jill, not as into dating apps. 79% of respondents, college and graduate students across the country said they don't use any dating apps, even as infrequently as once a month among those apps. The most popular was Tinder, which about 12% said they use monthly. But the overwhelming majority of young people on college campuses say they prefer to meet the old-fashioned way in person. It's interesting how all these things come around, Jill. One quote in the story, I feel dating apps have ruined the dating scene for many people my age and ruined their self-confidence. I'd rather meet someone in person. So there you have it. What's old is new again. Mosh, we did check in with our resident Gen Zer, Emily, who works on the Instagram account. We have a couple actually, Jill. <laughs> she said she has about 10 dating apps on her phone. So she's not on board with this, this. doesn't apply to <laughs> this doesn't apply to everybody if you're a single in your mid-20s in new york you're probably on a dating app because as big as that city is you still need to find a way to connect because no one's talking to each other everyone's rude to each other anyway interesting times jill and speaking of a, a sign of the times from reuters this year is virtually certain to be the warmest in hmm, 125,000 years this is according to european union scientists at the copernicus climate change service data from last month showed october was the world's hottest october on record when taken against the rest of 2023 they feel safe declaring that this is the hottest year ever. The heat is a result of continued greenhouse gas emissions from human activity, combined with the emergence this year of El Nino's weather pattern. El Nino is a natural climate cycle that temporarily warms part of the ocean. And then those warm waters come to the surface of the ocean where they are then released as extreme heat into the atmosphere. The previous record for the hottest year was 2016, which was another El Nino year. The UN World Meteorological Organization expects the warming El Nino climate pattern to last at least until April of 2024, contributing to a further spike in temperatures. El Nino's impacts on global temperature typically play out in the year after its development, which unbelievably will mean next year <laughs> may be even warmer. Yeah, so I should say most El Nino years are now record breakers because they have that going on plus climate change. 
Historically, the ocean has absorbed as much as 90% of the excess heat from climate change. A warmer planet means more extreme and intense weather events like severe droughts, those major storms where you get like a foot of rain in just a couple hours, uh, hurricanes that hold more water. The global mean temperature right now is the highest ever recorded, just about 1.4 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Why is that significant? Because 1.5 is the threshold we've been trying to prevent ourselves from getting over where we feel there could be some more catastrophic consequences. Sea ice down in Antarctica remains at record low levels. October marked the sixth straight month that we've seen Antarctic sea ice uh, at uh, very low levels. Jill, I mentioned on the podcast yesterday, November, very warm right now. You know, you could be seeing uh, summer-like temperatures Thanksgiving where you are in the U.S. So it looks like this is a year for the record books. Mentioned yesterday, too, we're seeing many more record highs than record lows right now. But there is something to climate change, you know, less global warming, but more global weirding just weird stuff we're seeing around the world, just because things are being thrown out of whack. So another warning sign for all of us, uh, and hopefully for the governments and companies out there, that uh, we need to continue to kind of figure out ways we can uh, clamp down on greenhouse gas emissions. Dare I say it feels refreshing to worry about the end of the world when it comes to climate weirding instead of the war in the Middle East. (laughs) (laughs) Jill, one thing is for certain. We had wars in the Middle East before climate change and they will continue into climate change. From Politico, three of China's cutest and most beloved diplomats left Washington on Wednesday, marking a turning point in the struggling relationship between their home country and the United States. The diplomats... A trio of giant pandas who came to represent China's burgeoning global ambitions, as well as Washington's most popular zoo attraction. The arrival and departure of the pandas, which spawned merch lines and a cult-like following, traces the half-century relationship trajectory between the U.S. and China. One China expert saying, quote, there is no doubt that this is a reflection of the state of bilateral relations. The pandas are supposed to unify the relationship with the United States and the relationship between the U.S. and China is so bad anyway. What is the point of the pandas being here? Oh, come on. We love the pandas. (laughs) We had to say goodbye yesterday to Mei Xiang. She's 25. Tian Tian, uh, 26-year-old, and their son, Xiao Qi Ji, the three-year-old, they were loaded onto three large shipping crates. Uh, FedEx apparently has the deal here. They have a special Panda jet, as some people call Panda Express, Jill, the real Panda Express. And the live coverage was amazing to watch. We posted a couple clips. Uh, I mean, it was live coverage in D.C. yesterday. They had the helicopter going. They were documenting every move of the pandas from the zoo, the motorcade through the streets. (laughs) I mean, it was like covering an inauguration in D.C. or the O.J. Bronco chase. Either way, it is the end here to a uh, 50-year tradition. I mean, hopefully it comes back at some point. Back in 1972, Pat Nixon, the first lady at the time, uh, fell in love with them, and they were able to make a deal as Nixon opened up China for these pandas to come to Washington. Those original pandas, Ling Ling and Sing Sing, kicked off the panda fever here in America. They would eventually send pandas to a number of zoos across the country. D.C. would get another pair. That's Tian Tian and Mei Xiang, who came in 2000 and are being sent back now. Um, I believe right now the last pandas are at the zoo in Atlanta, but they'll be heading back in the next few months. And then America will be pandaless for a while. And so China, you know, has been doing this panda diplomacy for a very long time. But given that things have gotten pretty cold, they're like, no more pandas for you. 
So they have these huge enclosures that they've built at these zoos. So let's hope that, uh, you know, we'll continue this at some point. I mean, I remember it was quite a moment. You know, I jokingly put up a clip from Anchorman on the Instagram feed. Anchorman with Will Ferrell documents like the panda diplomacy of that era. And uh, it'll be sad. It'll be sad not to have any pandas here, Jill. Well, President Biden is meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping next week in San Francisco. So maybe they can work something out. It's on the agenda. Like, stop sending fentanyl to Mexico (laughs) that's coming to America. Don't invade Taiwan. Can you, like, chill out on the Hamas (laughs) support? Can you not send weapons to Putin? And also, can you give us a couple more pandas? Like, we kind of want. Because otherwise, it's really hard for Americans to get to Chengdu, you know? And finally, from the New York Post, Andy Cohen has reportedly begged CNN to allow him and Anderson Cooper to drink while hosting the network's annual New Year's Eve broadcast on December 31st. Cohen telling E! News during BravoCon, hopefully I will not be sneaking it. I haven't heard anything yet, but come on, they need to let us drink. It is New Year's Eve. He says it didn't go well last year in terms of viewer happiness about us drinking. Yeah, I'm sure the no, viewers sobriety cared. was not popular. Yeah, <laughs> um, he said people really cared. And I hope CNN gives the people what they want. He said, give the daddies some juice. The daddies being, of course, <laughs> Angie Cohen and Anderson Cooper. If you remember back in November of 2022, CNN's then CEO, Chris Licht, had told staffers that on camera drinking was prohibited as it damaged CNN's credibility in the eyes of viewers. Both Cohen and Cooper were spotted, though, taking mystery shots after CNN had um, reportedly banned alcohol from being on camera. So, Jill, my favorite New Year's Eve was a couple years ago. It was 2021 when it was very clear that Andy had had too much to drink. And so he was throwing shade at Ryan Seacrest to host one of the alternate uh, New Year's Eve shows. Following a performance by Journey, Cohen called the band Ryan Seacrest's group of losers that are performing behind us uh, in Times Square. He later admitted on Instagram that he may have drank too much. Andy saying, I was a hair overserved last night, but man, did I have fun. I hope you did too. Also, Jill, amazing moment. That was the last time Bill de Blasio was mayor. And uh, Andy just proceeds to trash him as like the worst mayor in New York history, being like, good riddance to that guy. Uh, it was very entertaining to watch. Andy did not regret his words for Bill de Blasio, just for Ryan Seacrest. So those remarks, I believe he said, sayonara sucker <laughs> to de Blasio. <laughs> if Andy has his way, we might get some more entertainment on uh, New Year's Eve, Jill. But it wasn't just Andy Cohen and Anderson Cooper. Too. Like Don Lemon used to get absolutely right. Drunk. I, I think that was the core issue. If they could just keep it to Andy and Anderson, I think they would be fine. I think, though, like Don Lemon, Brooke Baldwin <laughs> days. like, and, and those guys are like, you know, they were allegedly serious journalists over there. And they would do ridiculous, ridiculous things. So I think they had to make a rule for everybody. But I feel like you should do a carve out for Andy and Anderson. And Moshe, I know I I suggested it in jest, but maybe we should do kind of a fun New Year's Eve podcast. Not really news. Maybe we could just have a a cocktail with listeners and and just talk or something. All right, let's talk. Um, Anyone listening, send us DMs with your ideas. (laughs) Jill, open it up on your uh, platform and we'll come up with a New Year's Eve game plan. All right, on this day in history, November 9th, in 1967, Rolling Stone magazine made its debut, the bi-weekly popular culture magazine founded by Jan Wenner. He actually got in some controversy recently with some of his remarks about uh, female and black artists, but you can't deny the impact that Rolling Stone magazine has had 
over the years, including launching the careers of a number of famous authors, including a young Hunter S. Thompson. All right, back in 1938, on this day, Kristallnacht, or Night of Broken Glass, took place. It was 48 hours of anti-Jewish violence uh, orchestrated by the Nazis in Germany and Austria, resulting in the destruction and vandalizing of synagogues and businesses and the death of 91 Jews. Staying in Germany here for this piece of history, on this day in 1989, the Berlin Wall was opened by the East German communist government. Jill, I remember in one of Thomas Friedman, the columnist's books, he talks about 11-9 and 9-11, 11-9 being the fall of the Berlin Wall, the opening of, you know, this open world, globalization, these, uh, you know, this future of potentially no war, and then 9-11 reminding us just uh, 12 years later, nope, the world has some other things in store for us. But a remarkable moment for those who might remember the images of the wall coming down, the symbol of the Cold War, the separation between the West and the East. Eventually, crowds would chip away at the wall, you know, literally taking hammers to uh, take little parts of the wall. And you can find parts of the Berlin Wall today all over the world in various museums. All right, we end here with a bit of pop culture. Um, we actually mentioned this on the Instagram account, on the premium account yesterday. The Wu-Tang Clan celebrate a 30th anniversary today. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is celebrating by declaring today, Wu-Tang Day. The Empire State Building will be lit up in their iconic black and yellow colors uh, to commemorate their 1993 album, Enter the Wu-Tang. Jill, who's your favorite Wu-Tang member? Not something that I actively think about. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Old Dirty Bit. The old old dirty, dirty bastard, bastard is the right? one you go with. Yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. I think he's he's probably my fave. Yeah, no, Method Man and, and ODB are probably the two ones who kind of broke out at some point. The rest of them were all part of a group. And we were joking about this in the office because I was like, you know, I remember in the 90s among my friends, like, you know, can you name all the members of Wu-Tang? Because there's like a dozen of them um, that were in it. And they're like, no, we probably are much more likely to be able to name all the members of One Direction, <laughs> which... They then proceeded to do, and we should end here with this. On this day in 2012, One Direction's second album, Take Me Home, was released. So, full circle. Mosh, I cannot name all of the members of One Direction, but we did get a uh, young Harry Styles from the group. So, thank you for that. You're a big Harry fan. Harry Styles and Taylor Swift. It's my connection to the young peeps. All right, Moshe, now it's time to take this home. We want to thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And review us in the App Store. Jill, it was great to have you back. I'm going to go get some One Direction on my Spotify right now and uh, hear the story of my life, as they say. The story of my life. All right. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.